Well, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, we're going to get back into this uh, study together. And I'd like to uh, read this uh, chapter with you. It's, um, uh, even though it's uh, longer than uh, normal that we would normally read at the beginning, but I'd like to read it for you just because uh, it just set, sets the Word of God in our minds and our hearts, and then we'll go back over it verse by verse and unpack it and explain it and hopefully apply it to our lives this morning. But I think we need to begin in chapter 4, verse 37, just to remind ourselves of the context. Chapter 4 was all about Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Here was this arrogant, egotistical, braggadocious king who was way too big for his britches and uh, really robbing God of glory that was only due to him. And so God humbled this man and uh, turned him into a cow. Uh, grazing out in the front yard. Uh, He went insane for seven years, uh, but then he repented. He repented of his arrogance, uh, his pride, and he gave glory to God Almighty. And then this is how he ended his testimony in verse 37 of chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just. And here it is, the moral of the story, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And with that statement, he is able to humble those who walk in pride, resonating in our minds. Now let's read chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king held a great uh, feast for, the thousand of his, for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing." Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they, would not, they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination and insight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. 
Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have, an author- have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes." Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out, many, many, teku ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Teku, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Father, we thank you for your word. And we know that every word in your word, was inspired by your spirit and is useful for our instruction. And so I pray this morning as we look over this chapter and consider the life of Belshazzar and pray that we would see ourselves, Lord, in this text, that we would see maybe others in this text who you have given us influence um, in their lives. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here today better equipped, Lord, to live lives that are humbly dependent upon you and uh, useful, Lord, to uh, help others, Lord, humble themselves before the one who holds uh, our very life in his hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, there's a well-known poem that I'm sure most of you, you have heard of. It's by the British poet William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus, or in Latin, Invincible. Uh, it's really a personal testimony of this proud poet's life. From the age of 12, Henley suffered from tuberculosis of the bones, which resulted in the amputation of his left leg uh, below the knee. Uh, Frequent illness often kept him from school, but he managed to pass the Oxford exam and soon afterwards moved to London where he attempted to establish himself as a, a journalist. However, his work was over the next eight years, interrupted by long periods uh, of hospitalization when uh, his right foot became diseased and uh, Henley contested the diagnosis. The doctor said that a second amputation was the only way to save his life and after three years in the hospital uh, and after having his foot amputated, he was discharged and led a relatively active life for nearly 30 years. And it's said that Henley wrote Invictus, or Invincible, from a hospital bed while he was recovering from the amputation of his foot as an expression of his defiance and resilience. This is what he wrote. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, and these are probably the two most famous lines, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of of my soul. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Obviously, this is a godless poem that expresses the defiance and the arrogance of the human heart, which pridefully presumes that we are the ones in control of our lives, that we are sovereign over ourselves. And I don't know of anyone in our modern day who exemplified this defiant, this arrogant attitude more than a man named Timothy McVeigh. You remember him? The man who was convicted of blowing up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And ironically, he chose to have this poem, Invictus, read as his final statement before his execution back in 2001. That he wanted everyone to know that he was the master of his own fate. He was the captain of his soul. Well, there was another man in history, not unlike Timothy McVeigh or the British poet Henley. His name was Belshazzar. And he too thought he was invincible. And his life serves as a tragic testimony of what happens to those who arrogantly defy God and fail to give him the glory as the sovereign creator and sustainer and judge of their lives. And here in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see another prideful king pick a fight with God. In chapter 5, we saw, or excuse me, chapter 4, we saw Nicodemus, or excuse me, Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar pick a fight with God, and he lost his mind, and in this chapter, we're going to see Belshazzar pick a fight with God, but he ends up losing 
his soul. Let's look at this chapter together, and I've just broken this drama down into five acts. We're going to see the drunken feast, the deathly fear, the disregarded foreigner, the divine forecast, and the decisive fall. Let's look first of all at the drunken feast. And at this point, I I think it's important to give you a a, a brief historical background uh, because nearly 25 years has passed between the events in chapter 4 and the events here in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar has died. Uh, He died in 562 BC after ruling for 43 years. Uh, the years that followed, leading up to, Babylonians, or to Babylon's overthrow by the Medes and the Persians uh, in 539 BC, uh, was marked by deterioration and intrigue and, and murder. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son, evil Merodach was his name. He ruled for two years. He was murdered by his brother-in-law, Nereglissar, who usurped his throne and reigned for four years. When he died, he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who ruled only a few months before he was assassinated by uh, Nabonidus, who then reigned for 17 years. Well, because Nabonidus was not the rightful heir to the throne, he married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, who we see as the queen here. Uh, We'll look at her in just a moment. And he made their son, Belshazzar, co-king or co-regent or viceroy of Babylon. There's a reason why uh, Belshazzar was saying whoever can interpret this writing on the wall will be the third in charge because it was his father and him were kind of co-kings, co-leaders, and this third person uh, would come alongside them. And so even though uh, Belshazzar is referred to as Nebuchadnezzar's son, um, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father multiple times in this chapter. He was really his, his grandfather, uh, and, and Belshazzar was his grandson. Um, Daniel may have also used the word father here to mean forefather. But, uh, so we have two generations now removed from Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, scholars believe that Belshazzar was probably in his mid-30s when he received this divine death sentence in chapter 5. Well, let's look at this, how this plays out. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So he threw a big bash, and he uh, had a thousand of his nobles RSVP. And um, again, based on what we know about this, uh, about the Babylonian culture, this was probably some kind of drunken orgy. And uh, what is ironic about this wild party is that they scheduled it while Babylon was being besieged by the Medo-Persian Empire. I mean, the Medes and the Persians were camped outside the city walls, uh, and they had laid siege on the city of Babylon. And so I think this shows how smug and how self-confident Belshazzar was, even though thousands of enemy soldiers were stationed, again, just outside the city walls. Uh, He and the rest of his nobles felt what? invincible. And even though they'd already been defeated in battle against the Medes and the Persians, his father had been defeated. He had gone out with the armies to to fight against the Medes and the Persians as they were coming, and they had to retreat inside the walls of Babylon. He was still still very self-confident. Now, the city of Babylon, historically, was approximately 15 square miles 
Uh, it was surrounded by an impregnable system of moats and walls. Uh, the city was encircled by a deep, wide moat, and its outer walls were said to be 350 feet high. I mean, just think about a football field, right? And add 50 feet to that. They were 80 feet thick with 250 defense towers and 100 massive bronze gates. In fact, there was even an inside wall which extended 35 feet below the ground. And uh, the Euphrates River flowed right through the middle of the city, providing the inhabitants an ample supply of water. They had food supplies, it says, that, that would sustain them for some 20 years. And so you can see why they felt like they had no reason to be concerned. I mean, you can't touch this right? And so they decide to have a party. Verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of, the God, house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And so this party went from simply being indulgent to being irreverent. And if you remember from chapter 1, verse 2, It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And they brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered Jerusalem, he uh, he went into the temple and took the holy vessels, and he brought them and put them in the temple of his gods back in Babylon. And that was, again, a way of saying that our gods are more powerful than your gods, and our gods conquered your gods. And so they had sat there in storage, apparently, for years, and uh, Belshazzar decides that he's going to go get those and begin drinking um, the wine out of these holy vessels. And so this was a, a, a sacrilegious act which desecrated these, these sacred things. They had invited, or, or I should say they, they hadn't invited God to the party, but unbeknownst to them, when they defied him, by using the sacred vessels to toast their gods, the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, well, guess what? They invited him to come judge them. And so what we're about to see is, is God crashing their party. We know party crashing is, is when you show up at a party that you weren't invited to. Well, guess what? God is a way of crashing all of our parties, right? We're just living our life, doing our thing, right? We're not thinking about him. We're not interested in him. And then all of a sudden, he crashes our party and he shows up and we have to deal with him. And so this second section here, we'll call the deathly fear, the deathly fear. Verse five, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. So all of a sudden, a hand supernaturally appeared and wrote a message on the wall. I still have a very vivid image in my mind of some children's Bible story book that we had in our home growing up, and that was one of my favorite 
pictures, and I would just stare at it for a long time, just thinking, wow, seeing this hand. I said, this hand writing out on this plaster wall, and I thought, wow, that was the hand of God. And I'm sure the banquet hall became deathly quiet as the king and guest watched in horror. I mean, can you just imagine you're just kind of, uh, you know, partying and, and, and you're, maybe you've got a buzz on right now, you're, you're, you're drunk and all of a sudden you see this hand start writing on the wall and you're like, whoa, right? I mean, it freaks you out. Well, and this is obviously where we get that very familiar idiom or expression, the handwriting on the wall. We use that all the time, don't we? Even people that don't know anything about the Bible, even non-Christians use that expression, uh, the handwriting on the wall, and they, they have no idea that it actually originated here uh, in the story of Daniel in chapter 5. Well, that phrase, what, what do we mean when we say, well, that the writing's on the wall? We saw the writing on the wall. What do we mean by that? Well, it signifies a warning of imminent doom or some impending judgment or the inevitable demise of some person or activity or organization. We saw the writing on the wall three years ago, right? Or we should have seen the writing on the wall. In other words, we saw the demise of this. So this was a warning of imminent demise or impending judgment on the Babylonian empire. Verse 6, then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. All that to say, the king was overwhelmed with fear. I mean, his face turned pale. He lost the strength to stand. His knees began to knock together, to shake violently. He was so afraid. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. This all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Kings making great promises, lavish promises, that if you can interpret this, then I'll give you this. And they come in and they're all scratching their head going, hey, we have, we have no idea. King, we don't have a clue. And so even though he promised these, these fortune tellers and, and astrologers um, tremendous reward, they were unable to interpret this ominous message on the wall. They couldn't decipher the writing on the wall. And that's when Belshazzar got really scared. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. And so now we come to the disregarded foreigner. The disregarded foreigner, obviously, is Daniel. Verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, and the queen spoke and said, O king... Live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. So word traveled fast 
throughout the palace about this hand and this message that was on the, the wall. And so Belshazzar's mother, I believe the queen, was again, this wasn't his wife, this was his mom, who, who again was possibly a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, told her son that he had nothing to fear because she knew a guy, I know a guy, <laughs> I know a guy, who could tell him what the message meant. And so she reiterated all that Daniel had done during her father's reign as king of Babylon. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you the, that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the passage. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. You may ask yourself, well, why wasn't Daniel called in the first time? Why did the king not think of him? Why did he have to be reminded by Nebuchadnezzar's daughter? Well, in my opinion, I think that Daniel had been disregarded. He had been minimized uh, over the years um, by this new pagan king. Um, If you will, there was a generation that maybe rose up that didn't know and love Daniel the way Nebuchadnezzar did. And so, um, by the way, if you're having a drunken orgy, you don't want a holy guy like Daniel, a man of integrity like Daniel around, right? Kind of, he'd be the party pooper. He'd kind of wreck the the party. And so I think he was disregarded. He was minimized. Uh, At this time, uh, commentators say that Daniel was probably by now in his early 80s, and he was still faithfully serving the Lord in this pagan culture. And I want to just point that out for some of you senior saints here that, hey, listen, just because you got gray hair, just because you may be retired, don't minimize yourself. Don't be disregarded. Don't let people minimize you. Uh, you can still have a faithful ministry uh, in this pagan culture. And again, the, the fact that he wasn't called in with the other magicians and, and astrologers, I, I, think, I think indicates that he had been disregarded by the other uh, diviners and by the pagan kings who had come after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, including his grandson who had heard about him, but again, didn't want anything to do with him up until this point. Now he needed him. He had no choice. And so again, Belshazzar promised him the same reward if he could explain what the handwriting said. And that brings us in verse 17 to the divine forecast. The divine forecast, verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Daniel wasn't interested in what he could gain from his services. He worked not for the king, of Babylon, he worked for the king of heaven, whose compensation package was, was uh, uh, more than adequate. He didn't need any supplemental income, if you will. Verse 18, O king, the most high granted, the, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. I love this. Verses 18 through 21, he just describes or, or, or reminds uh, 
this grandson of his grandfather's testimony. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was sovereign over the earth. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven, excuse me, driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with, with the wild donkeys. He was given grassy like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. So that was a summary statement of what we saw in Daniel chapter 4. And so again, Daniel's just summarizing how God dealt with his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, to teach him that he is the true sovereign of the nations who establishes and removes earthly kings according to his own will like he was just about to do with Belshazzar. And again, we saw in chapter 4 how the king of heaven, the most high God, humbled a proud man, forced him to bow down and worship him as the sovereign king of the universe who reigns supreme over his life and his kingdom. And as we're going to see, the grandson missed it. He, 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 he didn't get it. He didn't learn. He didn't go to school on his grandfather's testimony. Verse 22, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. You're just as arrogant as your grandfather was, even though you know all this. You've got no excuse. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, just like your grandpop. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath. In all your ways, you have not glorified. Interesting, it was the hand, the very hand, that held... Belshazzar's life showed up and wrote on the wall. So rather than learning from his grandfather's seven years of insanity, Belshazzar displayed the same pride. He openly challenged the king of heaven by his blasphemy and idolatry at his party. And again, he thought he was the master of his fate. He thought he was the captain of his soul. And Daniel made it clear to him that his life, his literal life, was in God's hands. And because he failed to glorify and honor him, he would be punished by having not only his kingdom taken away from him, but also his life. I think Belshazzar epitomized that parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 16, the parable of the rich fool. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy was only thinking of himself. And it was all about I, me, my. 
His world revolved around himself. Verse 20, but God said to him, you what? Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepared? That's essentially what God was saying through Daniel to Belshazzar. You fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. I think this is so important for us to acknowledge that we are sitting here this morning by the sovereign grace of God alone. The fact that you woke up this morning, that you survived another night, um, that you are breathing right now, your lungs are pumping, your, 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 your brain is, is, is functioning, it's, it's by the grace of God. According to Acts chapter 17, Paul said this to the, to the uh, arrogant, ignorant men on Mars Hill, describing to them the true God, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. You would not be in existence right now had it not been for God's grace in creating you and sustaining you all these years. And yet we are those who say today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to go here, we're going to make money. And what did James say? <laughs> you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're, you're but a vapor. You're like a bubble. And so if you are one of those described in Romans chapter 1 who um, does not honor God or give Him thanks but in your foolish heart you've become darkened and you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, that even though God has made himself so plain to all of us through, through creation and through our conscience and through the scriptures and through Christ and through uh, really the testimonies of, of, of changed lives all over the world throughout the centuries and you continue to deny that there's a God, you are arrogantly defying the very one who is keeping your heart pumping right now, keeping your heart beating right now. I think to some degree we're all like Belshazzar, aren't we, in our human nature. And so Daniel was just reminding this arrogant man, listen, you realize what you're doing? That you're defying the very one who holds your life in his hand. And if he wanted to kill you, he could. And he did. Notice the inscription here, the prophetic message, the hand, then that hand, the very hand that holds your life breath, that hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out, many, many tekel ufarsin, this is the interpretation of the message Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have weighed, you've been weighed on scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and have been given over to the Medes and the Persians. 
Interesting, this prophetic message only contained three simple words. The first word repeated two times. Uh, three words in the Aramaic uh, referred, all referred to units of money that really anybody could have read. This was just simple Aramaic. And it wasn't that the, the, the conjurers and the diviners didn't know, the magicians didn't know what it said. They just didn't even know what it meant. They had a deeper meaning that only Daniel could interpret, and he, he tells them the meaning here. Mene was the word for mina, a mina, a piece of money, uh, from the verb to number or to reckon. Teko was the word for shekel, and uh, from the verb to weigh, and then parson or eupharson, that was plural, but a parson was half a mina, and so it came from the verb to break into or to divide. Um, and so this was Belshazzar's and Babylon's epitaph engraved on the wall of his palace. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom has been weighed in the balances and found wanting, found lacking. And as a result, it will be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Again, balances in those days right, used to weigh payments. If a payment didn't meet the standard, it was too light, then it was rejected, it was unacceptable. That's what he meant when he said you were weighed and found lacking or found uh, wanting, found deficient. When, when God evaluated Belshazzar's life, he didn't measure up to his standards. He lacked the moral and spiritual character to, and, and so he fell short of God's standard of, of righteousness. And so he says, listen, your, your number's up, pal. You're done. You're, you're terminated. The party is over. And then notice, rather than having Daniel executed, which may have been what happened, it very easily could have happened, right? Here's a king potentially in a drunken state, and, and Daniel's confronting him. And basically telling him, you, you fall short, pal, you're done. He could have very easily had him beheaded or thrown into the furnace or before the lions. We know all the different ways the kings of those days would kill their enemies. But then it says, Belshazzar gave orders and they'd clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And so he kept his promise and again, God continues just to bless Daniel for his faithfulness. And then finally, in the last two verses, we see the decisive fall. The decisive fall. Verse 30, that very same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And so that very evening, sometime after the party, or while the party was happening, uh, the Medo-Persian marched, the Medo-Persian army marched into Babylon and seized world dominion. I think of Proverbs 29, Proverbs 29 verse 1, uh, really describes Belshazzar. Proverbs 29 1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. You keep stubbornly refusing to submit to the Lord, and He will eventually crush you. 
And that's what happened. And it's interesting to read the history of that attack that evening. And uh, how it happened was that the Euphrates River, as I mentioned, ran through the city from the north to the south. And so what the Medes and the Persians did is they split up their army into two parts. And the one part positioned on the north side of the city where the river entered the city, uh, and, and the other one was where the, uh, where, where the river exited the city, and, and the army to the north diverted the Euphrates by digging a canal to a nearby lake, which caused the water level to, to, to recede enough for the soldiers to enter the city under the, in, through the water canal, kind of walk back up the river uh, into the city. And, and since the walls weren't guarded, they didn't need to guard the walls. Nobody's going to get into this place, and we're all partying anyway. They just waltzed into the city, walked into the city. They, they were able to conquer the city without a fight. And so here we see the, the initial fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. Remember back in chapter 2, that, that, uh, de- 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 depicting the times of the Gentiles. And here, the kingdom represented by the gold head, Babylon, gave way to the kingdom represented by the, the silver chest and arms, which was the Medo-Persian Empire. And so, as I said, this is the, I think, the initial fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. But I also think that this is a preview for the nation of Israel and us of the final overthrow of the Gentile nations that rebel against God and are characterized by moral and spiritual corruption, just like Belshazzar. And this will, of course, take place at the second coming of Christ. Psalm Two talks about this, the nations rising up against the Lord and the Lord laughing at them and coming and conquering them. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Let me just read that quickly to us. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. This is the account of the coming of Christ. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on, the, on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. Um, if you don't know how to ride a horse, you better get some lessons because you're going to need to know how to ride a horse someday, right? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And so God's wrath was experienced by Belshazzar and by Babylon on the night that they were overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. But again, it was just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future when Christ returns. So ancient Babylon, again, is is a type or picture of the final world evil system ruled by the Antichrist who will experience a similar fall. And again, we're going to see that more and more as we move into the second half of the book of Daniel with all the prophecy that is there that all of these dots will begin to be connected. And so how does all this apply to us today? Daniel chapter 5, the story of Belshazzar and the overthrow of Babylon. Well, personally, the handwriting on the wall for you 
is if you don't humble yourself and repent of your sinful rebellion against God, what will happen? You're asking God to judge you. You may have not invited God to the the party of your life, and that's just your life. You're just doing your own thing. It's just your little party, and you haven't invited him to the party. He's not a part of your life. You've not invited him to be a part of your life. Well, you're inviting him to judge you, to crash your party, if you will. And the Bible says that all of us, by nature, have been weighed and found wanting. We all fall short of God's standards and deserve to be punished in hell as a result. That's what it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. He goes on to say, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We are all found weighed and wanting. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. But the good news is, right, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet weighed and found wanting, what? He sent his son. Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. But if you reject the gospel, again, there's no hope for you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, talking about you got two choices. Either you choose Christ or you choose death and hell. He says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, by the way, that's what you're receiving this morning. You're receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. In other words, you just hear the the good news of salvation, the gospel of Christ, and you're like, yeah, you know, whatever. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Interesting, just the language there and how it is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 5, it's a terrifying thing. Remember how terrified Belshazzar was? He couldn't even stand up, he was so scared. But it's a terrifying thing to fall into the, what? Hands of the living God. He holds your life in his hands, and he can do with it whatever he wants. It's a scary thing to be in the hands of God when you are not interested in him. And by the way, young people, don't fall prey to that silly notion that you might hear from time to time about what happens when you die. And you've heard somebody say, well, you know what? I'm going to go to hell and party with my friends. They they think the party's just going to keep going in hell. No, trust me, the party 
will be over. There will be no partying in hell. So that's personally. I mean, we see the gospel here in Daniel chapter 5. But how about nationally? Because we're talking about Babylon here, and it's, and it's how it was uh, basically conquered and destroyed and never been the same since. I'm sure that you can't help but see, as I do, the handwriting on the wall for our country. Do you see the handwriting on the wall for our country? Our nation is characterized by many of the same things that Babylon was characterized by. The wealthiest nation in the world. Indulgent. Indifferent. Irreverent. Like Belshazzar, we have forgotten God. And the psalm says this, Psalm 917, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations that forget God. Listen, when when a nation forgets God, its doom is sure. They seal their doom. They seal their destruction. I began by quoting from one British journalist, Henley. I want to close by quoting from another, maybe more well-known British journalist named Rudyard Kipling. We know of Rudyard Kipling, probably the most famous thing he wrote was The Jungle Book, right? But uh, many don't know this, but he was uh, born in Bombay, India, He became very much a child of that country and of the British Empire. During that time, he spent his schooling days in England, but at 17, he returned to India to become a journalist. And during the 16th year of Queen Victoria's reign, he was commissioned to write a piece and produce what was called the recessional, from which the lines I'm about to read are taken from. And what's interesting about this is that when Kipling put these words on paper, the British Empire had reached the pinnacle of its power in the world. Listen to what he said. Far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh entire. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power we lose, while tongues that have not thee in awe, such boasting as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. And so Kipling saw what was happening in Great Britain, and while they were the world power in that day, They had become drunk with that power. They had forgotten God. The one who had gotten them where they were, who had blessed them. And so he's appealing to the judge of the nations to spare us yet, to the God of hosts to be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. And I'm sure we can see the natural application to us here in America. We are the most advanced civilization 
And yet, by comparison, we are in many ways just like the ancient empire of Babylon, which sets us up for the same kind of disaster that Belshazzar and Babylon experienced back in 539 B.C. And while we may sit here and criticize the the drunken orgy and, and maybe consider ourselves better by comparison, I dare say that as a nation, we've been completely given over to immorality. And I think the lesson here for us is that one Belshazzar seems, may seem like a problem, a banquet hall full of a thousand or more people only complicates the danger, and as this commentator writes, but a whole country given over to its own pleasure should frighten us all. And so we do well to pray Kipling's prayer, lest we forget, lest we forget. I know you remember But we need to pray that our nation will remember and that God would yet be merciful to America. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and how timely it is, how practical it is, how relevant it is. And Lord, we see so much of ourselves, we see so much of our nation here in this chapter and written so many thousands of years ago. And Lord, we don't want to forget you because we know when people forget you, you tear them into pieces, as it says in Psalm 50, verse 22, and there'll be none to deliver us. And so we want to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and honor to you. And we want to order our ways aright Because when we honor you and obey you, you mercifully and graciously show us your salvation. And so I pray for those individuals here this morning who who may be just like Belshazzar. They're just partying on, doing their own thing, giving no regard to you at all, being irreverent, maybe even sacrilegious and disrespectful to you, that you would overwhelm them with the truth that you are holding their life in your very hands. And that they would want to repent of their rebellion against you and they would want to bow the knee to you and humbly submit to you and embrace your way of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for us as a nation, Lord, it's sad, it's scary to see what's happening before our very eyes, especially during this uh, presidential election year and we see our, our country spiraling down and uh, really fulfilling Romans 1. You giving us over, giving us exactly what we deserve, what we want, what we ask for. But Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be merciful still, that you would be gracious still. We know you're in control, and I pray we would not be afraid, we wouldn't live in fear, we wouldn't be... Uh, overwhelmed with anxiety about all that's happening in our nation right now, but that we would humbly trust you knowing that you are sovereign, that you reign, and that we know, we know who's going to be the next president of the United States. 
your man or your woman, whoever it is, for your glory and to accomplish your purposes. And so we can rest in you this morning. And so we thank you, we praise you, we worship you for who you are and what you do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.